It's time now for 360 on ABC Radio National. 360. 360. Features. Features. Documentaries. Documentaries. Hi, welcome to 360. Features and documentaries from around the world and down the street. I'm Brent Clough. Today, a set of rich and unique stories and poems about the city at night. These are the rather special results of the City Nights Project, where you uploaded your stories, images and documentaries to pool.org.au. From deep inside the rail tunnels of Sydney to the cobbled streets of Brussels. Imagine the lights are out and turn up your radio for nine strange stories of the night, adapted for radio by City Nights producer Gretchen Miller. Creatures of the night emerge silently. A quiet walk down the street is startled by their sudden dark shapes, by the sense of their armour grating against the shadows. They disperse quickly, but there is a feeling of cohesiveness in their silent mutterings. We try not to move quickly. Sudden movements draw attention, but movement must continue. Darkness has barely fallen, but it falls hard in the unlit spaces between lives leaving long hollows of moving shadow. Buildings, cars, trees, all become distorted in the hustled gloom of a city night. Where do we look? We can't make eye contact. Not with these creatures of the night. We grip our belongings lest they fall to the ground and draw us to their prying attention. Breath quickens and steps falter as paths are crossed, disturbed, altered. Our steps bring us closer to the main city, though we stick to the edges. More of the creatures emerge, their presence at once aggressive and scurrying. The blackness of their silhouettes blurred, creating a disconcerting haze of unknowing in an area which, during daylight, is so well known. Explosive laughter sends us skittering to the side, teetering on the edge of composure as their dark shadows burst into glaring streetlight. Bright colours, out of place, pull our attention, vibrant in the established gloom. We continue on. Saturday night intensifies our need for shelter. More of them are coming. The late hour giving their steps even more urgency. And we must pull further out as their territory expands. Even without light, their presence becomes distinct, their boisterousness setting them firmly apart from our own skulking shadows. Wednesday. I've started to count the men pissing outside my window. 
He's number 18. Neither he nor the previous 17 have any shame, unzipping with the drunkard sway. I know the call of cloudy Belgian beer well, but the stench outside my window brings out the scowl in me, and I practice my Flemish with a harsh bark. What do you da, scram Moulinbach? He looks over his denim into the darkness, grins up at my silhouette, and shrugs as he blames the beer. I push my thick amber bottle of Duvel back into the shadows of my windowsill. Nighttime, and Alberto feels this drive is something he has been waiting for his whole life. This kind of strange perfection. It's the outskirts of Campbelltown in the dark, and there isn't much to do except for the driving. There's the moon and a few spindly trees and dirt roads leading out to fence posts and an endless stream of nothingness. The moonlight casts shadows onto the spindly arms of lonesome trees. He likes to think that the noise from their car gives the trees some sort of comfort while they stand out there, all alone in the velvety darkness. After all, nighttime is when cars go ice skating. Alberto knows about the ice skating. Billy knows about it, and now they're showing Shrey. Faster! Billy calls from the back seat, and Alberto speeds up and hits the brakes shortly after. So they slide forward, a few kilometres it seems, on the dust which turns into a plane of smooth ice beneath the tyres of his brother's car. Usually they borrow Billy's senile granddad's truck, but Billy's been itching to try their game on Adam's Mustang ever since he brought it home. Alberto stole the car for Billy's birthday because he didn't have any money to get him anything else. You're crazy, Billy's girlfriend Shrey calls out. Alberto turns up the radio and watches the two of them make out in the rearview mirror. The moonlight sifts through the window and breaks upon Shrey's bare legs like puzzle pieces. Billy rubs her knee and inches his hand up closer between her legs. Billy gets all the girls. Alberto doesn't get any, isn't sure if he's interested anyway, but he likes to watch Billy. He feels there is something here he can learn, something he might need later. Time for a drink? Shrey says, passing their bottle of whiskey to the front seat of the car. It's a demand, not an offer. And Alberto takes it, mostly because he doesn't know how to say no. It has the taste of Shrey's lipstick. Alberto imagines this is what sex tastes like, kind of sticky and sweet, with the aftertaste of anaesthetic. When he hands it back, 
Shrey looks flushed and excited like she's ready for the future to keep coming and coming. Figure eights, Billy calls, and Alberto obeys, swerving into the front of someone's five-acre plot and back again and back. He sees the trees standing at the side of the road, looking at him, astonished. Outside, the world is getting darker. Inside the car, everything is lit up and alive. Let's go crazy, Shrey calls, pouring whiskey into her mouth so it streams out the sides. Alberto drives faster, hits the brakes and turns the wheel as hard as he can. The world goes into slow motion. The car pirouettes again and again. Alberto feels like he's watching the whole thing from outside of his own body looking back at himself. He watches Shrey and thinks of all the hidden things women hold. She is leaning forward with her mouth wide open and her hands straight up in the air like a ballerina in a music box. Billy is laughing. Alberto is outside of himself and then, literally, he is on the outside. He feels his body fly through the windscreen. He turns and waves as he floats through the night air. The car lit up on the inside and hurtling through the sky like a shooting star. Thursday. She's appallingly young. With expensive boots and a menthol cigarette, its pale butt glints in the twilight. I hear her before I see her, sneak to the windowsill with a practiced gait. She's crying in deep bursts, howls starting down low in her chest, raking my skin as they erupt from her throat. The tremor in her voice slays me as she croaks into the phone. Je ne suis pas encore prêt pour rentrer à la maison. I'm not ready to come home yet. And I close my window with trembling hands. I wish I could throw words of comfort onto the cobblestones. But my French isn't strong enough. Friday. My street isn't made for speed, and the cracked cobblestones send them sprawling with a regularity that makes me wince. Eight Irish backpackers race up and down the alleyway with bloated jowls and yelps of cheer, beer bottles placed for safekeeping against the burgundy walls of my narrow medieval house. My need for connection finds me on the windowsill, laughing with them. Their slang so familiar to me, and their mood infectious. They beam up at me with crooked teeth and yell, Can the winner or not get a kiss from you, Carlon? I grin and realise it's the first time I've spoken to someone in days. It's the jaundiced streetlights. It's the black-lined lung of harbour. 
It's the hum of unthinking. It's the billboard screaming. It's Friday bleeding. It's the unsilence. It's a fresh tongue of tar. It's the whiff of possibility. It's taillights and soft focus. It's a bottle top sky. It's the unsilence. It's unseen and schemings. It's the strip and neon hit. It's the smeared mirror's lie. It's the unsilence. It's the lips of driveway. It's the first sip of stopping. It's the silence. gallery overflows into the small kitchen. People jam-packed together. The smells of red wine and hot bodies. Limp jacks and sweaty cheddar on the gallery counter. Punks in woolen duffel coats like wet dogs. Poseurs in expensive alternative fashions. And art students, poorly dressed with youth, beauty and naivety on their side. The Institute of Modern Art, newly new, fresh in Eagle Street, up the fourth floor of a since-demolished Edwardian building and reached by four sets of old wooden stairs or the lift out of a 1920s horror movie. It's the place to be and be seen at. Gabrielle wants to be both seen and at the forefront of the happening times. Dreams of becoming the artist everyone promises she will be. Gabrielle lives with a bloke on a 62-foot yacht anchored under the Story Bridge. She's an art student and Jim's a smuggler, con artist, storyteller and regular at the Story Bridge Hotel. Not yet trendy, Evans Deacon Shipyard's workers drink at lunchtime and the matron from Mount Olivet downs her Guinness for the blood in the lounge bar. Living on the river with the seven-knot tides flowing past and sometimes a bobbing body is a changing kaleidoscope of colour and light. Across the river, there's the water police shed under the Story Bridge with its new corrugated tin pieces on the roof where the suicidal jumpers haven't quite made it to the water and have landed on the roof instead, the silver metal finally more inviting than the blackness of the river. That night, Gabrielle and Jim motor in the dinghy over to the Eagle Street ferry jetty and go to the opening together. They chain up the dinghy against theft and walk the short distance up the street to the gallery. Gabrielle struts her arty, floating walk. She was secretly pleased to see herself reflected in Malay's painting of Ophelia at the Tate last summer on an unexplained trip to London with Jim. Gangster stuff, she remembers flicking long auburn hair. Just behind her, Jim, silver-haired with short bandy legs in faded flares. They make an odd couple, 
his face like a sepic mask, and hers a pre-Raphaelite innocent. Love is blind, and she myopic, and he eternally grateful, but not grateful enough. The crowded gallery gets claustrophobic, and Gabrielle longs for the quiet boat and sleep. Jim wants to party on with a large group moving to the Queen's Hotel where they can listen to live music and drink until daylight. Jim's not leaving his mates and Gabrielle's bed calls. So she kisses him lightly and walks out and down the stairs. The stone walls of the Edwardian buildings have deep recesses and drip shadow onto the pavements. It's dark out on the road and the streetlights seem far apart as she hurries down towards the river. Footsteps echo behind her. She quickens her walk. The footsteps match her pace. Right at the jetty, Gabrielle remembers the dinghy keys in Jim's pocket. The footsteps are getting closer, coming down the ramp, and she doesn't dare look. But her skin prickles, and she knows it's a stranger. A man. She smells the rank danger. Gabrielle's legs turn to water. She's like a jumper having to decide. Corrugated tin or the river. No argument. Gabrielle steps out on the wooden jetty and half falls, half dives into the dirty water. The tide is turning the dark bulk of Kangaroo Point and Elambari, the boat, seems miles away. Her long muslin hippie dress drags her sideways. Her Birkenstocks slide off, but her body feels strong, pulling fiercely at the water. The man won't follow. He's shouting from the jetty, but Gabrielle keeps moving out into the centre of the river. Lights flicker across the water as she breaststrokes through the night. Refusing to think about sharks and dead bodies and swimming as fast as she can, Gabrielle makes it to the side of the boat, holds onto the anchor chain with one hand and floats. Ophelia's hair had been strangely dry in the painting and she had not fought the stream. Gabrielle hauls herself up the thick anchor chain and flops onto the deck, clothes sticking like second skin, an oily taste in her mouth. Peering over the cockpit, back across the river, the figure on the jetty has disappeared. An empty ferry slides past, only the driver at the helm. Gabrielle laughs out her shock and relief. She has no death wish. She and Ophelia have nothing in common.
in the empty breeze of untapped electricity. He was somewhere up the way. And I, in my plastic bucket blue uniform, was afraid. The emergency phones had been taken off the hook. A systemic dysfunction. Nerves jacked clacky. Repeatedly over weeks. He or them. Again that night, 3am, somewhere in the underground near my lost my control room. I was off to effect an arrest. There was reason to fear. The lithium Lithuanian who sat in silence and waited for no train until the raw time began. Also met George on the platform. Hairless, armless, psychopath giant who wore a vast floral dress so he could piss and crap unaided. And sly old Peter too, who loved his God and any little children left unsheltered. The brittle islands about the floor of scratchy, girlless gangs with all the hate that Saturday night had thrown up over their denims. Rail stations saw an edgy, dirty data that mere passengers failed to notice. Inhumed through the throat of night, high tide of void, jetsam ribs of fluorescent illumination, smell of cooked asbestos doused under compacted seashell, the Doppler rows of passing trains and trip signals. This is the ration blood of these desiccated invert worms. Those tunnels need passage. Stainless steel is the lubricant. Absence makes each surface scabbed and achy. Rails flex, bereft, shackled. There are the contrails, revenants of conversation. People throw them out and they're trapped beneath ground. Unfilled chambers mumble until dawn. Their imposed dreams are ringtones. Unfinished shards of work, breakups, tricks, savage plots, or fashion. I was always quiet as I wandered there. We who walk the vacancy don't dare feed this sullen cacophony. Ozone frisson, movement up ahead. Be nothing. My torch, a weapon made its own burrow at the end of which one figure in aimless twist 
the shaky wrist of this contact. We idly resisted the hungry grunt of drains, dual foci, two luminous flares of flesh. Be nothing. Cabling fretted in the pancake of stale air. Hives of dark swarm the distance. To approach a man like this, flensed eyes, flensed hands, flensed feet. In this rusted sphere of timetables, he was what they called an NFP. No fixed place of abode. Own nothing. I take even this story as my own. My arrest, simple as shunter gloves. I think I said five words, barely registered in the dreary noise of his untreated mind. He is caught. I am caught. Our roles will not stretch. Power turns tail and. Intelligence is no self, no choice. The usual excuse. He was put down on a stalwart vinyl chair at the security office. A bent and filthy hope. One of them, blocky blonde and aerated with action, asked if I wanted to go. I was strong enough to decline. Starling twits, weak enough not to intervene. I used my excuses frantically. The hour still in concrete catheters, the veins of night. There was, was no rehearsal. All our days are numbered. Moral failure. Impotent vicinities. Mills of snot, NFP leaked, scared and crying. The patrolman thought they had a simple solution: smashed his head into a matching grey desk. No point laying charges with bloody NFPs. You will never bash. Come to central. Again, bash. Another moment, caromed past into the linger of weight like stone above air. Late shift lives on lines. Still or in flail. Yeah. Culpable hands. Saturday. Thunder jolts me awake. What country am I in? Then lightning sends pale flashes across the blood-red walls, and I know I'm in the street of the candlesticks.
in a 500-year-old house with rotting precarious stairs and a cellar so sinister I keep its doors wedged shut with a broomstick to lock its Hieronymus Bosch demons within. I clear away the empty bottles of black cherry beer and notebooks from the windowsill and open the window to the night. I can taste the storm in the cool air that rushes in over the medieval rooftops of Brussels. And as I breathe it in deeply, I feel almost at home. I sit and let the rain splash against my hands. It always began with a feeling, a hollow quiet that stole through the building as though it were holding its breath. Miss Pardee would listen, almost subconsciously at first, then taut with expectation. That noise, would it come, when, this second, or the next, or the one after. There, that sudden rush of air, the rumble through the walls and a door slamming. Someone was on the roof, she was certain. Miss Pardy knew she should fix the lock. She'd only left it broken on account of old Willie. He'd been going to the roof every night towards the end. She'd got sick of opening the door. He said he couldn't sleep, but Miss Pardy suspected something more of the whimsy in his stargazing. He lay flat on his back, the ancient foley aircon vibrating beneath him like bad shiatsu. Eventually, Miss Pardy brought him a mat. Then, from time to time, she would bring up tea. They'd drink together quietly to the sound of distant traffic until he was ready for bed. But that was over now, and Miss Pardee hadn't slept in three weeks. So she went to see Tony, the handyman from Fifth's. Though she offered cake, a bonus, and even free rent, Tony refused to go near the roof, for he had begun to have strange encounters up there. Late at night, he'd often see the wisp of a sleeve or a shuffling limb, sometimes the outline of a shaggy man in the upper hallway. However much Tony called and jogged after the figure, he never caught up and was beginning to suppose the man a ghost. Miss Pardee felt a shiver and a jab, though she told Tony not to be so silly. Then she went to Mr. Baker, the locksmith on the top floor. He opened the door dishevelled, red-eyed and quivering, hurrying Miss Pardee inside, saying how lucky she'd come. Mr. Baker, too, had not been sleeping, convinced his apartment was possessed. Whispering voices disturbed his sleep. They came after dark, 
a thousand restless mutterings through the walls. Miss Pardee knew then she'd have to go to the roof. She climbed the stairs warily, for it was fast approaching midnight. But when the night air bit Miss Pardee, she smelt upon it something unexpected, smoke and cooking meat. In the far corner, a hermit crouched over a small and ailing fire on which he was attempting to roast rats. Miss Pardy called to him angrily, but he didn't look up. Speaking softly, he said he expected she wished him gone, but not to worry. He was leaving that night. The building was haunted. For in the midnight hours, he'd been chased by a disembodied voice that called to him. He'd had to hide behind the planter box. Then he asked Miss Pardy if she knew about that hole on the western side of the roof. It led to the Foley's aircon ducts, and if a landlady were to climb inside and lift a loose panel in the ceiling, she'd be able to watch the roof door unseen and there uncover its mystery. The hermit shuffled off, and Miss Pardee quivered, for she did know about that hole, the man-sized hole that had been punched through the roof by a concrete facade fallen from the taller building next door. She approached it reluctantly. Three weeks ago now, and Miss Pardee still had not repaired it. The ambulanceman had done a fine job of clearing away distressing stains. But the frayed ends of a mat still poked from inside the cavity. Poor old Willie. A strange smell wafted from the hole. Miss Pardy swayed at the unbidden thought. There might still be remains in there. Then she saw the feathers. She lowered herself inside the hole, and the stench of pigeon poo became tenfold. Her descent was greeted by feathery rustlings. Miss Pardy regarded the pigeons, and they blinked incuriously back. She exhaled. And then it happened. The stillness. So small a change, yet so unmistakable a sudden softness in the air. Miss Pardee scrabbled round the floor, the panel. Where was it? Miss Pardee's fingernails scratched at the floor. Willie was coming. She was sure of it. Any second now. Her throat constricted. It would be him. She would see him. If she could just... Miss Pardee turned her head at the noise and saw something she'd not seen before. There, amidst the broken plastic casing of the Foley's control unit, hung a messy tangle of wires exposed by the advent of falling concrete. They were torn. The damage was new. She could tell, 
for the exposed copper was bright. Miss Pardee sagged, for now, she realized, no electrician needed. The air conditioner had been switching itself on and off. Perhaps when the broken wires were brushed by a wing or disturbed in the breeze. On cue, the machine powered itself up with a rumble and a rush, and there was a tiny groan through the walls, like the building was taking a breath. And all around her, the pigeons began to tremble as Miss Pardy thought of Willie and found herself gasping. The next day, Mr. Baker moved out in a frenzy and Tony booked a sudden long holiday. They met on the pavement where the hermit was raving about evil spirits. A flock of spooked pigeons circled and swooped above. For from the roof that night had come terrible sounds that started at midnight and didn't stop till dawn. The hermit swore it was a growling sound, a terrible roaring and a gnashing of teeth. Mr. Baker said it was more of a wailing noise, as of a lost spirit trapped inside the very walls. But Tony was silent. And when Mr. Baker asked him what he thought, he looked back and shivered. He thought it sounded like someone crying. Sunday. The alley cats are charming, but I have a special place in my heart for little black creature. He's young and wary, whiskers unmarred and ebony fur still lush. And he only ventures out at night when the footsteps have died down. I throw down chunks of goat's cheese from my window and laugh when he creeps away with golden smears on his nose. I worry about where he sleeps when snow piles up on the cobblestones. And each time I see his little lion's nose peer around the alley, I sigh my relief. I croon endearments in the tongue I'm slowly acquiring. Makrotia means Sahar Tabolika. And try not to register the burn in my throat that I'm uttering them to a cat. But in this city I now call home no one has ever said my nickname. Monday. I think I should call the police. My window gives a bird's eye view of the tiny pub on the corner of Rue de la Samaritaine, a typical Bruxellois brown cafe with one hopeful table on the pavement outside. I often perch on my windowsill to swill red wine and spy on the customers, but it's the owners who give the show tonight. His beer belly is gargantuan and thankfully slows his gait as he stumbles drunkenly towards his wife, 
who shakes her head in disgust and spits in his face. I'm just reaching for another glass when I see him emerge from the pub with a sword so huge he can't even lift it, and I have to clutch the window frame to stop from falling out. I watch his breathless attempts to lift it with a mixture of dread and amusement, and when the sirens get louder, I'm relieved that neighbours without my visa issues have taken action. I already know that if I hold the curtains at a certain angle, I can still peer out. Swigging a liquid audacity. Sniffing a powder keg capacity. Smoking a crystalline steely shell. Friday night from hell. Lunging at the passers-by. Leering and eager to terrify. Laughing, jeering, trying to repel. Friday night from hell. Engorged with testosterone, reeking with cheap but nasty colognes, grappling a defiant bombshell. Friday night from hell. Charging with the wired bulls, catching a piercing fistful, clashing of the stainless steel arsenal. Friday night from hell. Tuesday. Her moans wake me, and I know not to turn on the light. He has her pressed up against the bricks, his thigh between hers, a hand on the back of her head. No one ever thinks to look up at the windows. He pushes into her, and her hips grind back in a circular motion, so slow I draw in my breath. It's 3am and there's no moonlight, but I can hear the hunger in her moans. He twists a handful of her dark hair around his fist and pulls hard, and I can hear his demand float up to me. Ouvre ta bouche. Open your mouth. His words, their sultry arrogance and smoky tones make me ache. I can't look away, but in truth, I don't even try. It could have been any party, really, and we were going, with beer. It was any night, too. We walked under a purple-black blanket of sky, smoky clouds wafting across it, it was a familiar walk. The city doesn't excite us anymore. Who cares about the raindrops on the leaves or the sounds of someone playing the violin, the way the trees shake their rain off when the trains go past? It's just some place. Just a road, and it was taking us to a party. That's all we noticed. It wasn't long before we were there, at this place. There was music... Pretty good, but nothing we hadn't heard before. 
girls were dancing in that way girls dance when you realise you've been watching them with a drink in your hand that you haven't been drinking for a few minutes. So you check yourself and try to walk away but your legs won't work anymore. When their hips are drawing circles in the air that probably make the most beautiful patterns in all the world. Hey, you. A girl yelled at me. I looked over and she walked up to me, sudden as a car crash. Come and play strip spin the bottle with us? I'd been watching her all night, but it was only at this moment I started to see her. Her features resolved like a television coming into focus. I didn't know who us were, probably no one I knew anyway. I mumbled a yes and followed her into a bedroom. An empty vodka bottle poised at the ready in the middle of the floor with about ten people lounging around it. They looked like a pride of lions. It wasn't just any party now. I kissed someone, took off my shoes. He kissed someone else, took off her cardigan. She kissed someone else, wait, no, she kissed me, took off her stockings, around and around. We were drunk. We were undressing each other with cheering and laughing as stockings rolled around ankles and bra straps fell off rounded shoulders. Drunkenly, things were unremarkable. A generic blur punctuated by more and more skin. And then only skin and a couple of dashes of lace. And then skin. It's funny how being naked makes everyone seem alike. All the others were blank-faced and generic, lounged around her like animals, big pink and brown creatures. The bottle spun to face her, as if of its own accord. She was already nude, and waves of laughter rippled away from her. She stared at me, and I was unable to look away. Our eyes were locked. So when she started to take off the skin around her neck, I could do nothing but continue to return her gaze. Reaching over her left shoulder with her right hand, she peeled her skin downwards across her breasts and torso, slowly and without expression. The skin came off smoothly like the skin of a fruit. As it fell limply off her body, the skin's underside showed itself to be a delicate red colour, wet and alive. Underneath, the beautiful red muscles and sinews glistened in the dim light. I was at once disgusted and intrigued. It was clear this was a normal thing for her. Girls always have these party tricks they pull out, and this was hers. Around us, the others were talking amongst themselves, running their hands over each other's backs and legs. For a moment we were savages, and she some savage goddess. Still sitting on the ground, she had pulled her skin down to the level of her hips, and it lay around her like a skirt, soft and folded and impossible. I had never seen a girl anything like her ever before. It was just any party, on any street, on any night, under an unexceptional sky, and this girl had taken off her skin and looked into my eyes. I could feel the sweat trickling down my naked back. She was sitting in front of me, 
a collection of anatomical parts somehow still breathing, living, watching me. We watched each other for a while longer and eventually the group began to depart. They dressed themselves again, searching for underwear, socks and clothes, more drinks and places to collapse. The more clothing they put on, the harder it was to hold her gaze and the more I started to feel the air on my skin. And yet her eyes seemed to remind me that I couldn't possibly be feeling the elements in the way that she was, sitting there more naked than any of us had ever been in our whole lives. As I reached for my underwear and pants, she began to roll her skin up around over her hip bones, quicker than she took it off, her delicate fingers smoothing it out against herself like wrapping paper. For a moment, I looked away, busy pulling up my fly, and when I looked back, she was doing up her bra. She slipped on her T-shirt, flipped her long hair out the back of it. She smiled at me as she pulled up her jeans and walked barefoot to the backyard. After that, it was just another night, full of kind of pretty girls and boys with booze. With her skin on, she looked just like everybody else. And after another drink, I could barely remember her face. It's funny how with skin and clothes, everybody kind of looks the same. Later, we walked home and I ambled behind with a sick feeling in my stomach. I counted the street lights. 63. I didn't even think about the corners I turned. We're getting too close now. We can hear their breath drawn sharply between overacted laughter. A claustrophobic at their smell of perfume mixed with cologne, mixed with alcohol. They know we're here. They can sense us too, though their eyes refuse to stray to the corners of the city night. Our clothes are camouflaged to them, allowing them to slide over our presence while their anxious hostility is extended, marking their territory. A brief respite, as they're all tucked safely inside the overwhelming closeness of their destinations, breathing alcohol through their pores and seeking out new companions. We breathe our own sour smells easy for a while. But the respite ends as the early leavers fall over themselves to escape what's become unpalatable. They continue dribbling out, some fighting for greasy eats, others too busy holding someone close. By now their comforting alcoholic haze blocks us from their sights, and they forget about our presence. We move closer watching their weekly ritual become messier as the night begins its transition to morning. Their territory retreats as their vision blurs and the first signs of dawn appear. The city will soon be back in the hands of the workers, scrubbed clean of the evidence of the creatures of the night. And then 
we too will be brushed aside from the daylight gaze until dusk falls and our time to watch over the city is born again. You've just been listening to Creatures of the Night by Alison Gibson, Street of the Candlesticks by Rain Collins, Ice Skating by Felicity Castagna, From Frio by Kevin Gillam, Gabrielle Ophelia by Lindy Collins, The Hands by Les Wicks, Miss Party Hears a Noise on the Roof by Jackie Dent, Friday Night from Hell by Gabriel Bryden, and Unremarkable by Amelia Schmidt. These were the successful stories of the City Nights Project, adapted for radio by Gretchen Miller. Gretchen also wrote the music you heard, performed by Dave Ellis on the double bass, Timothy Constable on percussion, Marjorie Smith on clarinet, and Nick Meredith on guitar, and recorded by Phil McKellar. You heard a version of Know Your Product by Ed Cooper and Chris Bailey, and Unremarkable featured music by Ghost Solaris. Readings were by Tony Barry, Deborah Kennedy, Toby Schmitz, and Ella Scott Lynch. Sound engineering was by Russell Stapleton. And thanks to Bill Monaco and Ahmed Alafkal of State Rail and Judy Rapley for the recordings. You can stream audio, read about the projects, find links to final scripts, forums and original stories all at the 360 website at this address, abc.net.au slash rn slash 360. And if you're in Melbourne, this month Federation Square is screening a slideshow of images and texts you uploaded to City Nights. Every night, 7.30 till 8pm until September the 24th. And there'll be more City Nights to come. We'll keep you posted. Our thanks to all involved. It's been a great project. I'm Brent Clough. You're listening to 360 on Radio National. And we'll look forward to your company next time.